Again, we're opening up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, as we continue working our way verse by verse through this wonderful account of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Peter and Andrew are on their fishing boat. And they're not in the boat because they want to be. In fact, they were in the boat all night long. And they caught nothing. And they had already come to shore. And they had already cleaned their nets. It's past time for them to head home. To fill their stomachs. To get some shut-eye. But the Lord Jesus asked Peter take him in his boat just off the shoreline so that he could better preach to the crowds. And then Jesus commanded Peter to take the boat out into deeper water and drop the nets. And it was a test. And Peter, like many of us, couldn't help but protest a bit, but he also chose to obey. And at the word of Christ, he and Andrew dropped the nets. And the catch was the catch of a lifetime. They had to call for James and John to come with their boat to to assist. The catch was so weighty that both boats were threatened. And the wonder of what is happening comes upon Peter. And he realizes that this man in his boat is more than just a man, certainly no ordinary man. The sovereign power of Christ, the glory and the majesty, the holiness of it all, it suddenly grips Peter, it puts Peter on his knees, and he cries out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And right here, at the beginning of this sermon, I want to make a point that I hope will be an encouragement to those of you who have walked with Christ for some time. The point is this. It is often God's pleasure to give His people increasing and greater glimpses of the glory of Christ. Let me just say that again. It is often God's pleasure to give His people increasing and greater glimpses of the glory of Christ. Now let me explain. Yes, Peter is on the floor of his boat, kneeling before King Jesus. He's feeling his guilt. He's feeling the glory of Christ so intensely that he'd he'd rather jump out of the boat and be with the fishes than continue in the holy presence of Christ. And yet, it isn't as if Peter hadn't spent time with Jesus before. Peter was in the synagogue in Capernaum and he had heard Jesus preach with divine authority, with supernatural power, with with Holy Spirit unction. And Peter was in the room when the demon was cast out in the middle of the synagogue service. Jesus spent time at Peter's house. 
Peter was there when Jesus miraculously healed his mother-in-law. He spent time breaking bread with Jesus in his own home. And it was at Peter's house that Jesus spent an entire night healing person after person who came to the door. And not one person was brought to Jesus that he couldn't heal. So it isn't as if Peter hasn't seen something of Christ's glory before. Surely he marveled like everybody else at the power of Christ preaching. Surely he thought, by Jove, as he watched the demon cast out of that man. <laughs> With every healing that Christ performed in his doorway, Peter stood in amazement, giving glory to God. It was because Jesus already knew Peter and had a relationship with Peter that he commanded Peter, hey, let me use your boat. And yet, even after knowing Christ for some time, Peter is suddenly given by the Holy Spirit through this fishing miracle a greater sense of the splendor of Christ than he had yet known before. And even after this, it's only going to get better. There will be greater glimpses of Christ's glory to come for Peter. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus will unveil himself. He will reveal to Peter's physical eyes something of the brilliant, blinding glory that is his as the Son of God. What Peter sees in this boat here in Luke 5, he will Physically see the dazzling whiteness, the, the blazing white hot purity of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet even that pales in comparison to the sight of Christ and all his glory given to Peter the moment he passed from this life into heaven. Crucified upside down in Rome. One moment Peter is in agony. And the next moment he is seeing Jesus with new eyes, with a greater capacity to behold and receive the wonders of Christ than ever before. Mount Hermon, every true disciple of Christ knows something of the glory of Jesus. Even if it's only a taste, something of Christ's glory has been known by every believer but as you follow Jesus, as you submit to Jesus, as you trust Him and take Him at His word, you will find that there can be sweeter and sweeter moments ahead for you, given to you by God, where you get even greater tastes of the glory of Christ. Don't think for one moment that because you've been converted to Jesus, you don't get to experience any more special on your face moments before King Jesus. You should pray for those moments. You should call out for Christ to, to reveal himself in his glory to you. And then you should commune with him and spend time in his word and cry out for more of his majesty to be shown to you. And when you visit the beach, see Him as you look out over the ocean. And when you go to the mountains, see Him in the mountaintops. And when you look upon a brand new grandchild, or when you sit in your backyard and look at the sky at night, or just study the trees or the ants or the flowers or the bees, 
Everywhere you look, you should be pursuing a growing sense of the grandeur of Christ. A sense that will come as you have more and more moments when you realize that He is even better than you knew. You already know as a Christian that Christ is wonderful. He's better than you know. He is more wonderful than you have yet experienced. There are more glimpses of His glory to come. You've only just begun. Okay, look with me afresh. Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. As we read this passage this morning, I want us to pay attention specifically to the theme of evangelism. Okay? Because that's where we're going. So look at the theme of evangelism as we read these verses again. Luke 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. And followed him. So we've been looking at this passage and unpacking some characteristics of a true disciple of Christ. And we've seen that a true disciple obeys the Lord Jesus, even when obeying is hard or uncomfortable or doesn't make sense to us. Disciples hear the word of Christ, they trust him, and they obey. And secondly, we've already seen that true disciples know something of Christ's glory. But now, a third characteristic that we see in this passage of true disciples of Christ is that they are fishers of men. They are fishers of men. Peter's on the floor of the boat. He's trembling before Jesus. He's pierced to the marrow of his soul by the holy power and majesty of Christ. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And so here we see the calling that comes upon Peter from the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew records the words, follow me. That is, in this moment, Jesus is bringing upon Peter an irresistible calling. 
A calling to become who God has ordained for him to become. That is, this is not a moment where Peter can sit and deliberate for a while. Well, should I follow or should I not? I'm not sure what I should do. Let me, let me make a, a pro and con list, right? No. He is in the holy presence of Christ, just like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, right? When he sees the Lord and then he hears the voice saying, who will go for us? Here am I, send me. This is Peter's calling moment. His own heart has been won by the Savior. Now nothing else in the whole world can compare to the man in his boat. Wherever he says go, Peter's going to go. Whatever he says do, Peter's going to do. And what is Peter being called to do? Be a fisher for men. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, Jesus has just illustrated what that will mean. For Jesus has been man-fishing too. Jesus has just been preaching the gospel. He has just been calling on a crowd to repent of their sins and become citizens of the kingdom of God. And so Peter and all who follow Christ are called to be gospel sharers, gospel declarers, right? good news proclaimers. We are to call others to repent and believe. Now, it is absolutely true that Peter is being prepared for a special office. That is, Peter, as well as James and John and Andrew, they are going to become four of the twelve apostles. And that is a unique calling. We're going to spend some time in the next chapter, Luke 6, talking about the uniqueness of the apostolic office. These men were going to have a special role in history, a role that is not repeated, an office that is not open to you or to me. We stand on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But I want to be clear. The call to be a fisher of men and to share the gospel and to win souls is a call given to all followers of Jesus Christ. Don't make the mistake of some of the hyper-Calvinists or some of the old school primitive Baptists that said that the call to evangelize was only given to the leaders of the Christian churches. Only the apostles and the missionaries and the pastors, they're to do the work of evangelism. The people in the pew, it's not their calling. That is incorrect. The book of Jude calls all Christians to save others by snatching them out of the fire. The Sermon on the Mount calls all believers to be salt and to be light. We are all instructed in 1 Peter 3 to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us with gentleness and with respect. When someone asks you about your faith, you should not reply, let me give you the phone number of my pastor. When someone asks you about your faith, you should be eager and ready to share the good news of Jesus with them. I think one of the clearest passages of all that show that the evangelistic mission is a mission given to every member of Christ's church is in 1 Corinthians At the end of chapter 10, where Paul says this, listen. 
He says, so whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Okay, so notice that Paul says that his goal and everything that he does is that people would be saved. He says, I try not to put needless obstacles in front of people. He says, I don't seek my own advantage. I'm willing to forego my own rights. Right? I don't try and cause problems with people because I want them to have a clear path to hear the message that I have for them. My desire, my aim is that they may be saved. Very next verse is this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul says, here's how I live my life. My whole life is lived trying to think how to live before others in such a way that they will be willing to give the gospel consideration. That the people around me will be willing to hear and think about the message of Christ. I want people to have the opportunity to respond to a call to believe. He says, now you imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ lived this way first. Notice in our passage that Jesus doesn't actually issue a call or a command. He simply tells Peter, you will be catching men. So also, I think I can say, every true follower of Christ will be a witness to others in this world. You cannot be a follower of Christ and care nothing for the souls of people around you. If the Spirit of God has come to live within you, then the same Spirit that compelled Christ to leave heaven and die on a cross for sinners is the same Spirit that's inside of you, giving you a holy compulsion, a holy desire, a longing to be used by God to see others come to heaven with you. Spurgeon went so far to say that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. He also said, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unravel all the mysteries of the divine word. For salvation is the one thing we are to live for. He said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. It's no accident that this calling to evangelism comes through a fishing miracle. Jesus is intentionally giving Peter and Andrew and James and John a living analogy a living parable about evangelism. These guys were skilled fishermen. This was their livelihoods. And in some ways, their years as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee was a better education and better preparation for what God had in store for them than going to some great school or some great seminary. They were to take principles of fishing and they were to bring them 
to their new calling as evangelists, as disciples, as apostles, as fishers of men. To put it better, Jesus is teaching these four men that there is one great principle of fishing that is now to be brought into their new lives as disciples. What is the great principle they are being taught? What is the great analogy between fishing and evangelizing being taught in this passage? I think it's this. That just as fishermen, they had to depend on God for their success in fishing for fish. So they will now have to depend on God for their success in fishing for men. Because isn't that the point of the miracle? Isn't that the message behind, we fished all night and caught nothing? At your word, I'll lower the nets. Here they are. These guys fished with, with drag nets, and their hope and prayer each time they lowered their nets was that the fish would be active, that they would be drawn into the nets, that they would have a good catch. And certainly, as skilled fishermen, they knew some tricks of the trade. They had some skills that they had learned over time. But at the end of the day, God controls fish. And at the end of the day, God provides the catch. And if you know somebody who's a professional fisherman or one of these bass masters, right? talk to them about this. Even the best of fishermen will tell you, they don't really have control. <laughs> Either the fish bite or they don't, right? On this day, they had fished all night. They had caught nothing. And then at the word of Christ, they fished again and had the catch of a lifetime. The hope of these men now, as they go out fishing for people, is not to be in their own strength. Their confidence is not to be in their own words. Their confidence is not to be in their own skills, their own knowledge, their own selves. Their hope is to be in Christ. And when Christ gives the blessing, he will bring souls into their nets. In fact, many thousands will be brought into the kingdom through these four men. But it will be by the sovereign decree of Christ. Because Jesus is Lord over the fishing. Uh, This passage teaches us a truth that is difficult for some. But it's also glorious. It is the truth of God's sovereignty in evangelism. The fish come into the nets when Jesus ordains for the fish to come into the nets. Yes, people choose to believe on Christ. But no one chooses whose heart doesn't compel them to choose. And the hearts of men are in the hands of God. Deep down, almost every believer knows that if someone is going to be saved, it ultimately must be by God's mighty hand. After all, you would be hard-pressed to find a true Christian who doesn't praise God and thank God for his own salvation. Isn't that what we do? We don't come to God and say, God, thank you for making salvation possible for me. Thank you for providing the door. I'm sure glad that I, of my own free will, walked through it. I'm sure I'm glad I was smart enough to make the right decision. Thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity to choose. That's, that's not the way we pray. We pray, thank you, Lord, that when I was lost, you found me. Thank you, Lord, that when I was blind, you gave me eyes to see. 
Thank you, Lord, that when I was dead in sin, you gave me life. Thank you, Lord, for having mercy on me and sending Jesus and saving me. You see, when we thank God for our salvation, we always give him 100% of the glory, and we're right. We're right because at the end of the day, it's nothing we've done that saves us. It is his sovereign mercy. Or think about when we pray for our lost friends and our lost loved ones. G.I. Packer wrote this back in 1961. I wrote this sermon earlier in the week and then G.I. Packer actually passed away this week. 93 years old, a dear man. If you've never read a book by G.I. Packer, go get Knowing God. That's the one to start with. You need to read Knowing God. It's life-changing. It is a wonderful Wonderful book by J.I. Packer. But he also wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God and Evangelism. And here's what he says. In what terms do you intercede for others who are lost? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently of him? I do not think you do. I think that what you do is pray in categorical terms that God will, quite simply and decisively, save them. That he will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hard hearts, renew their natures, and move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. You would not dream of making it a point in your prayer that you're not actually asking God to bring them to faith because you recognize that's not something he can do. Nothing of the sort. When you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that it is in God's power to bring them to faith. You entreat Him to do that very thing. Your confidence in asking rests upon the certainty that He is able to do what you ask. And so indeed He is. This conviction, which animates your intercessions, is God's own truth written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. Deep down, every Christian knows salvation belongs to the Lord. The nets will be filled in evangelism when Jesus gives the blessing, when he speaks the word. The sovereignty of Jesus over evangelism was a wonderful message for these men who were being called to this work. Why? Because it meant that James and John and Peter and Andrew now knew that it was not their job to worry about how many fish were in the nets. Their job was to be faithful in the fishing. Mount Hermon, there have been times when the people of God have shared the gospel over and over again with many different people and the nets just kept coming up empty. There have been dry seasons and droughts in evangelism, for Christians personally, for churches, for entire cultures, for missionaries. But our comfort is that Christ is Lord over the fishing. He knows what He's doing, and He's called us to just be faithful. Keep glory in the nets. I think of Adoniram Judson. He saw so little fruit in his own lifetime from his missionary endeavors Even as he suffered so much, lost his wife, he lost his babies to diseases in that foreign land. And yet he seemed to, he kept lowering the nets and pulling them up and there's no fish. 
And yet what he couldn't see is what we now see. That through his seed work, God reaped a harvest so that now there's more than a million believers in Myanmar. Spurgeon said this, If there existed only one man or woman who did not love the Savior, and if that person lived among the wilds of Siberia, And if it were necessary that all the millions of believers on the face of the earth should journey there, and every one of them plead with that person to come to Jesus before that person could be converted, it would be well worth all the zeal, the labor, and the expense. If we had to preach 10,000 years, years after years, and never rescue but one soul, that one soul would be full reward for all our labor, for a soul is of countless price. The ways of God are mysterious and strange. Some Christians are faithful witnesses their whole lives, and they see very little fruit. Then there are stories of young people, 16, 17, 18, who get up and they and they stumble in sharing the gospel. And yet God saves hundreds or even thousands. Even in scripture, we see periods of spiritual drought and we see moments when the fish just pour into the nets. Think about Pentecost. Think about the days following Pentecost. As thousands upon thousands of people heard the gospel and were baptized in the name of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards preaches a sermon to his congregation and it bombs. He preaches the same sermon in the church next town over and the great awakening comes to New England. John Livingston was a Scotsman, fine preacher. In 1630, several churches were meeting together over several days at a little church on the road between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Different preachers were scheduled to preach at one point during the conference. The pastors would lead people in taking the Lord's Supper together. And as this particular conference continued, several of the pastors sensed that God was doing something unique. There seemed to be a special power, an unction to the preaching. And so they decided to extend the conference by one day. It was supposed to end on Sunday. They said, we're going to have one more preaching service on Monday. And they asked John Livingston if he would preach the final sermon. And he was a humble and godly man. And he felt the weight of preaching this final sermon. He had not planned to preach And all these people were hopeful of what God might do. And honestly, he felt empty. And he was scared. And so he went out into the countryside. And he pled with God to help him. Others were praying as well that night. They were praying that God would use his message and bring fish into the nets. And Livingston says that his heart was in agony into the early hours of Monday morning. But when he came back from the countryside, he came not only with a message to preach, he came with a God-given assurance that his message was going to be blessed. Because it wasn't about him, it was about the word of Christ. 
And so he stood up and he preached. And even there in rural Scotland in 1630, more than 500 souls were added to that little church between Glasgow and Edinburgh after the preaching of that sermon. So Peter and Andrew and James and John were to learn this lesson from the moment of their calling. They were to be fishers of men and they were to look to Christ for the catch. What is the lesson for us? The lesson is let us be faithful to drop the nets. Let us be faithful to keep on fishing. Let us have the gospel on our lips. Let us pray and look for and intentionally seek out gospel conversations with those around us. May we be a missionary Baptist church. May we be a gospel people. Then, just as the farmer works but trusts God for the harvest, just as the fisherman casts his nets but looks to God for the results, Let us pray to the God over all that he would bless our calls to salvation and that one day we would see even this room so filled that the fire department would threaten to shut us down. Jesus is capable and he could do it in one day. One day. One one dropping of the net. So let us pray. Let's pray.